So this morning, we enter into a new section of the book of Luke. Up to this point, uh, we've been seeing that Jesus is, is going around. He's doing a lot of healing. He's doing a lot of casting out demons. Uh, he's doing a lot of you know, going into the synagogues and teaching. But we haven't actually got a chance to really peer into what it is Jesus is teaching. But that's going to change this morning and from here on out in the book of Luke as Jesus enters into uh, the first here of one of his longer teaching discourses that I'm excited uh, for us to study together as a church. And I'm going to be honest with you this morning that what, what Jesus is going to say here is going to challenge you, or at least it should challenge you. It's probably going to offend you in one way or another. It's probably going to cause you, or at least it should, to leave here and begin to evaluate your life and your priorities in life. And then, Lord willing, it will lead you to the proper response, which is genuine repentance before the Lord, a seeking of forgiveness in the areas that you have failed, and then a life renewed to go and, and strive after the Lord as he, as he calls us to. And so what I, what I want from you then today is to then be honest with yourself. To not listen to what's said and try and, and justify your sin or try to justify why you might be the exception to the case that Jesus is laying out here, but rather to, to let the Spirit do His convicting work in you. That's one of the reasons that God has given us the Spirit. Not to, to, to always make us feel good, but to convict us of our sin, to conform us more to the image of Christ. And that's going to involve humility. That's going to involve a, a, a willingness to admit your sin. And that's going to involve a, a, a running to the, to the cross of Jesus Christ for grace that, that the Spirit of God might change you. And so that's what I'm, I'm hoping you'll do this morning. Have an open heart to evaluate uh, where it is you have failed um, as a Christian. And so let me read our passage this morning. Uh, Luke chapter 6 verses 20 to 26. And so Andrew introduced this passage for us two weeks ago. Um, Jesus has come and now he's entered onto a, a level place. Um, that's why I think this is a different sermon than the Sermon on the Mount. Luke goes out of his way to say, no, it's not a mount, it's, it's a level place. Um, that, that Jesus is going to be uh, teaching his disciples and those who have gathered around. And so let me read the first of his teaching uh, in this Sermon on the Level. And he lifted up his eyes, lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward 
is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. See, sometimes as a preacher, it can be difficult to to make an outline for a sermon from a passage. Thankfully this morning, Jesus has made it very easy for me to do. He gives us four blessings for a certain group of individuals, which, which he calls the Beatitudes. And then he gives four corresponding woes for the opposite of that group of people. And the obvious takeaways for us this morning is that we want to do what it takes to fall into that, that first category. Now, before we, we get into each pair of blessing and warning, I want to first lay down a few interpretive insights that are going to help us properly understand this passage. There can be a lot of, of confusion over passages like this, and that's partly because people, people aren't following these good interpretive uh, principles when we, when we approach Scripture. And that's, that's true for all of the Bible, you know, not just this passage. You could know the Bible inside and out, but if you don't know how to properly interpret the Bible, then, then you come out with all sorts of, of false understandings and false theologies. That's, that's usually how cults um, start. They take little pieces of verses and they stretch them and build their whole theologies off of them. The Bible the Bible's like a map. Now you, can, you can look at a map, you can memorize a map, but if you don't know how to read maps, well then the map is really no good to you. And so, so here are a few interpretive principles that are going to guide us as we, as we look at this. The first one is that uh, the word blessed doesn't necessarily mean happiness in this life. Some people will translate this word uh, mercurios as happy, but that's not, that's not always the case. You know, the, the word means the divine favor of God. You know, Jesus is saying that, that these people who are blessed are the ones who God looks upon favorably. And in, included in that will be you know, the, the immediate blessings that come that might bring some happiness. Uh, as well as, and, and I think more, more prominently, the future blessings that come from being blessed by God. For, for example, the first beatitude says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. You know, it is the kingdom of God, not, not will be the kingdom of God. Your, your, ble- it, your blessing is the kingdom of God. It's an immediate blessing to be part of God's kingdom here on earth. But then we also see that that it's a future blessing as well. You know, the, the kingdom of God is, is still to come and be fully consummated and, and the poor shall inherit that. So that's the first interpretive principle as to what it actually means to be blessed. Second interpretive principle uh, is that the woes being announced here are warnings. They're warnings to us. 
is not uh, condemning people here. He's warning them that if they continue down in this path, then ultimately that is going to lead to their condemnation. And so what Jesus is doing here for us is he's, he's holding up a sign, a danger sign for us, saying, whoa, be careful. If you continue to, to, to head down this path, this is where it's going to lead you. And so heed my warning and, and, and turn back while you still have time. And then thirdly, Jesus is speaking here in, in terms of patterns, not absolutes. And I think this one's really important for us to understand. Jesus is not saying all the poor, all the hungry, and all the mournful go to heaven. And all the rich, and all the full, and all the laughing go to hell. Or else everyone here who, who had themselves a, a, a nice breakfast is sitting here, their stomachs aren't, aren't groaning in, in hunger, would be on the path to hell. No, Jesus is speaking in, in patterns here. And patterns that have some, some deeper um, spiritual meanings at times. You know, it, it, it's the poor who will tend to be this way and, and the rich who will tend to be this way. And the way that the poor tend to be sets someone off for, for greater likelihood to turn to and trust in the Lord. And the, the way the rich tends to be sets them up for a greater likelihood to trust in themselves rather than the Lord. And so these are, these are some of the interpretive principles that I think will, will, will help us rightly understand uh, this text. So now, now that we've, we've laid that ground, let's take some time to look at what Jesus is actually saying. And the sermon has four points. We can go through each of the, the blessings and each of the, the curses paired together. And so first, blessed are the poor and woe to the rich. Look at verse 20 of our passage. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then verse 24, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Now a lot here, how we understand this passage, is going to center on what does Jesus mean by the word poor? Is Jesus meaning financially poor? No, poor in a, in, a, in a material or physical way? Or is he meaning spiritually poor? Like Matthew says in his gospel, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because how, how we understand that really de- determines how we understand this passage. Well, I think when looking at the corresponding woe that Jesus gives, it helps us understand what it is he is meaning. Jesus says, Woe to the rich, for you have received your consolation. Now the word poor might be up for for debate, but the word rich isn't up for debate. Jesus is is pronouncing a woe upon the financially prosperous. He's talking about financial status. and, And so then the poor, the opposite of that, are those who are poor financially or materially. And now, so now the obvious question is, why, why is why is Jesus even saying this? You know, why are the poor blessed? Why had why has Jesus you know s- signaled out this this particular group? Why are they the ones who receive divine favor of God? Why why does Jesus even care 
about financial status at all. And like, what does that have anything to do with this? Well, he says this because whether we like it or not, it's the poor who are more likely to recognize their need for God. And it's the poor who are more likely to end on God. And it's the poor who are more likely to be driven to God to receive his grace. Essentially, being poor puts a person in a more favorable position to enter into the kingdom of God. Now that's a hard That's a hard statement. But here's an even even harder one. Being rich can often prevent you from seeing your own neediness and from turning to the Lord of grace. The the rich are, are constantly assaulted with the temptation to trust in money as their savior. If I have everything that I want in life, if, if every problem can be fixed by throwing some money at it, if I don't have any real genuine need in my life, well then why do I need God? Why do I need God? That's, a, that's an easy mentality that can come with having riches in this world. And unfortunately, you know, that's what, what the, the statistics show in our world as well. You know, richer countries tend to have less religious belief. The larger it is your family income is, the less likely you are to believe in God. And there's a reason. And Jesus says later in, in Luke, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The reason is that riches can get in the way of us receiving the kingdom of God. We often, we often see riches as, as a blessing. And in many instances, they can be. They can be a blessing. But far too often... And the reason why Jesus says these radical things is because riches are usually one of the main things that lead to our, our rejection of Jesus. We don't need them. We don't need a savior. We don't need anything in this life because we have it all, because we have money. Now, why is that the case? Now, why is someone more likely to, to reject uh, or to be, to be kept out of the kingdom of God because of Riches. I'll give you three reasons. See, riches are not the issue. It's the underlying sin that comes from riches. And here's, here's three sins that often come from riches. First, with riches often comes pride. With riches often comes pride. Like Nebuchadnezzar, who I read about earlier. Now he says, Is not this great Babylon which I have built... By my mighty power. Riches comes with pride. We say, this is, this is my doing. This is my hand. I've, I'm the one who takes care of myself. I'm the one who makes things happen. The second sin underlying riches is that riches often comes with greed. It was John Rockefeller, perhaps the, the richest man to, to ever live. He, he owned 1.5% of the GDP of, of America when he lived. And when he was asked, how much money is enough money? 
This is the way he replied. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. In other words, riches will never satisfy. There's always more riches that you can get. You will never be satisfied with a certain amount of money. You will be greedy and greedy and greedy for more. And then thirdly, riches often comes with idolatry. Comes with idolatry. I trust in my money. My money gives me comfort. My money gives me security. My money gives me peace. When things get bad, I can fall back on my money. Money can become an idol in our lives. And yet with with poverty, it's often the opposite. Instead of pride, greed, and idolatry, poverty can if you have the right attitude, bring humility and bring contentment and bring trust, not in idols, but trust in the Lord alone to provide for you. Now, as I, as I said at the beginning, these are, these are patterns. They're not, they're not absolutes. There are, there are rich men in the Bible who are not proud and not greedy and not idolatrous. You know, Job comes to mind, for example. And not all poor people are are humble or content or trusting in the Lord to take care of them. You know, the Israelites in the wilderness come to mind as an example. But Jesus is saying that these are patterns that tend to be true. And it may be hard to hear, and you may not like it, but that's what Jesus is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. Now the question is, which one of these are you? Which one of these are you? Rich or poor? And before you answer, I'm going to ask you a few, few questions to help you evaluate. You know, it's, it's less about how much money you have. It's less about that and it's more about how you view your money and the sins underlying your money. I'm not saying, and I don't think Jesus is saying, he had, he had followers that were rich. He had a rich man. He was buried in the tomb of a rich man. He's, he's not against all riches. He's against um, the sins that underlie our riches. And, and I want you to, to think, maybe even though my bank account isn't full, maybe I am a little more rich than I think. And so here's some questions. A few of them I got from a, from a podcast that I was listening to by, by Aaron Rock. And so here they are. Question number one, are you a greedy person? Are you a greedy person? Do you, do you have a disproportionate desire for money and possessions? Do you covet and envy what other people have? Do you, do you desire money and material things so much, but then when you get them, you know, just it doesn't satisfy you, you. You need more. You need the next thing. Are you willing to manipulate people in order to get what you want? Do you see the, the newest computer, the newest phone, the newest tool out on the market and just need to have it, even though it's practically identical to the one that you just purchased last year? Now, are, you, are you greedy? That's the first question. Question two, is money your idol? Is money your idol? You know, money is, is one of the chief idols in the world. That's why Jesus, when he talks about two, serving two masters, he specifically talks about the master of money, and the, the, the other master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, 
can't serve two masters. You can't have an idol and still love and serve the Lord. And in our society, I think money is probably the biggest idol. We live in a very materialistic society. And money has become the chief God in the place of the true God. And so the question is, is that you? Is money your idol? Is money the, the primary place that you find comfort? Is it the primary place you find security? Is it where you get purpose and meaning in life? Will you find yourself compromising your morality so that you can make a few extra bucks? You know, does, does money dominate your, your thoughts and your times and, and your mind and your time? And when, it's, when, when money or possessions are taken from you, are you furious? You know, do you enter into a stage of, of depression where you're bummed out? Will you do whatever it takes to get that thing back? Is money your idol? Question number three is, is your pursuit in life riches? Is that your pursuit in life? You know, it's not innately wrong to, to own things or to have possessions. That's not, that's not a wrong thing. To, to want a house to own instead of renting a house. To, to want to enjoy a nice glass of wine or, or a T-bone steak. Or to have a car that doesn't break down every time you drive out of the driveway. It's, it's, th- these things aren't innately wrong. It's not, it's not wrong to want them. And Christians can sometimes have this kind of Gnostic-like attitude where Everything material is, is bad. You know, everything material is bad. To want anything material is to, is to not um, be, be wanting Christ enough. But I think that, that's unbiblical. In fact, Paul, in his letter to Timothy, calls out people as false teachers for teaching that very, very same view. And so we want to make sure that we're not, we're not judging others because they might want something or because they even have something. God created us as material beings in a material world that we get to enjoy. We get to enjoy this material world. God, God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and not the Sahara Desert for a reason. Just so that they could reap in the, the, the joys of this material world that God has given us. But where the problem lies is when material things, riches, possessions, and whatever it might be, when they become the ultimate goal of your life. You know, every decision that we make in this life is motivated by something. It revolves around something. And now is that thing the will of God? Or is it the pursuit of money and material possessions? You know, are, are, are finances the main thing that guide your decisions in this world or is God? And question number four. Do you view money and possessions in terms of ownership or do you view them in terms of stewardship? This is a helpful one. Do you, the things that you have, do you hold them with a, a closed hand, a closed fist, or do you hold them with an open hand? The Lord gives them to you, but if the Lord takes them, there's, there's not a big struggle. The, the Lord can take and use them as he pleases. Do you, do you have a mindset of, of this is mine and I will choose what I want to do with it? Or do you have a mindset of this has been given to me by God and he chooses what I do with it? And this is, this is a hard mindset to kick. Ever since we were little toddlers, we think in terms of ownership and stewardship. All of my children knew one word very well from a young age and a word that I never taught them. 
Well, maybe I did. Maybe I showed them by my, by my own failings in this area. Every kid knows the word mine. Mine. It's one of the first words they know. It's one of the first words they say. And we didn't teach it to them. But it's because innately within us, there is this, this sinfulness that we have that has this mine mentality. I worked hard for this. It was given to me. This is mine. But at the, the root of that is, is a false view of stewardship. It's not yours. It's not yours. It's, it's, it's God's. And so stop closing your hand around what you think is your money and your possessions and steward it for God. And that leads to the last question to ask you to see if, if you are maybe rich in, 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 in heart. Are you generous with your money and possessions? And Christians ought to be generous people. Paul exhorts Timothy to teach the people to be generous and ready to share. You know, to teach them what Jesus taught, that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And so are you generous? Do you give away money without expecting anything in return? Do you, and, and, and when you do give, do you, do you give not from your excess, no, with the, with the leftovers? It's, it's not generous to, it's not an act of generosity to go and take your old clothes and drop them off at Value Village while you go and buy new clothes. That's, that's not generosity. Do you give in a way that hurts a little bit? You know, that, that, that costs you a little bit. That's sacrificial giving. Do you share your possession with others? Do, do, you, do you make an effort to, to look and to seek out opportunities where you can be generous with your money and bless those with the money and possessions that God has blessed you with? Are you a generous person? And so now that we've, we've looked through those questions, I'll ask you again. Which category do you belong in? Rich or poor? As I was reading through this, I realized you know, that, that I probably fall more with some of my attitudes into the rich category. And I need to repent of that. And I need to, to, to turn away from those sinful attitudes and habits that I have. And I think a lot of us are probably a lot richer in our mindsets and attitudes than we might actually think. But in, in, in God's grace, Jesus he gives us this warning. You know, God's warnings are, are a gift of kindness and grace to us. He, he gives us this warning not to continue down that path. You can change. You can change the way you view money. You can change the way you steward what God has given. You can change the way that you are generous. You can repent of your idolatry of money. And so if that's you this morning, I, I, I encourage you to, to, to evaluate that in your life and to repent where necessary because if you don't there the, the consequences are serious and to the poor jesus says yours is the kingdom of god you are the children who will share in the divine favor of god who will experience eternal life who will be rewarded with the new heavens and the new earth when they come but to the rich he says you've already received your consolation your reward is the pleasure that you were able to buy with your riches. You received your comfort. You've received your blessing. There is nothing left for you to look forward to when your short life of living for yourself without a concern for God or others 
comes to an end. Those are the consequences if we don't heed this warning. And so Jesus says, blessed are the poor and woe to the rich. Now moving on to the second beatitude. Blessed are the hungry and woe to the full. Look at verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Then verse 25. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Now this one is, is pretty similar to the first one, so I won't spend much time on it. Jesus is saying that God's divine favor is towards the one who is hungry. And then he gives a warning toward those who are full in this life. And again, Jesus is speaking in absolutes. is not speaking in absolutes, but in patterns here. Now, hunger doesn't get you into heaven. And being full doesn't keep you out. And even I think Jesus here is, is getting to more than just physical hunger. That's not, that's not necessarily what he's after. That's just a, that's a picture of, of something he's, he's getting deeper into. See, what Jesus is, is really after is, is the idea of comfort in this world. Comfort in this world. Those who are, are blessed are those who are not receiving the comfort of this world. People who are struggling along and who are not having their needs met in the world. People who are, are hungry for more, who, who, who haven't had their fill of this world. People who are, who are not satisfied in this life. And then in contrast, it's, it's, it's those who are full. You know, those who have had their fill of comforts and pleasures of this world. Who have been satisfied with what the world has given them. Who have no struggles or no other needs that they're seeking to be filled. Now, they've indulged. They've, they've eaten their fill. They have, they have taken what this life has to offer. And they are satisfied with it. And the reason I say that that's what Jesus is meaning is because the reward, he says, for those who are hungry is they shall be satisfied. Now again, why is, why is Jesus pronouncing blessing on the hungry and woe upon the full? Well, it's because the hungry recognize that this life does not and cannot satisfy. While the full are content and satisfied with what the world has to offer. And therefore, there's, there's no more longing. If you're satisfied with something, you don't long for more. If you're, if you're completely content in something, there's no, there's no desire for more. And so the, the full have no hunger, desire for anything more. They have no hunger and desire for the Lord. You know, an interesting theme that runs throughout the Bible, I think helps us to interpret this, is the idea that the the people of God are exiles on this earth. That we are exiles on this earth. In other words, you know, we don't really belong here. We don't really belong here. We are foreigners here. We are strangers here. Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 20, our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. And so what that means is that since we are exiles, the, the world is never going to satisfy us. There will always be a hunger for something that we can't get on this earth. We'll never feel really comfortable until God restores his, his perfect paradise and we are with him. 
And so I guess then the question that you need to ask yourself, is this world now enough for you or is there something more that you long for? Are you, are you, are you content with taking in the comforts and pleasures of the world or do you hunger for something more? If, if, if your life, if God were to say, okay, the life you're living now is the life that you are going to live for the rest of eternity. Would you be like, yeah, okay, I'm okay with that. I got a good life. Or would you fall down in tears and weep? Because you know that this life, it doesn't satisfy. That this is not what it is meant to be. Are you, are you hungry or are you full? And this is important because Jesus says, Woe to those who are full now. For you shall go hungry. In other words, if you're full in this life, when the next one comes, there's going to be nothing for you. If you're going to spend this life living for the pleasures and comforts it offers, there's no future reward or future pleasure or future comfort or satisfaction for you. But to the hungry, Jesus tells us there is a great and wonderful feast that is coming. The marriage feast of the Lamb is what the Bible calls it. And it's those who have, who have gone hungry in this world. It is those who have not had their fill. Those, those who have hungered for something more. It is they who will join the feast where they will be satisfied for all eternity in their Creator. Blessed are the hungry and woe to the full now, now we've gone to the third beatitude. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. In verse 25, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now this, is, this one's an interesting uh, beatitude. Is, is Jesus saying here that Christians should be people who are walking around in sackcloth and ashes, moaning and mourning, and being especially sure that we never laugh at anything. A few of you guys just laughed a second ago. Have you just knocked yourselves out of the kingdom of God? You know, is that, is that what, what Jesus is saying here? Thankfully, no, that's not what he's saying. I, I, actually, as a whole, the Bible calls Christians to be joyful. You know, Proverbs 17, verse 22 a joyful heart is good medicine. Or Psalm 126 talks about the people returning to Jerusalem being filled with laughter and their tongues with songs of joy. And so Jesus isn't saying, you know, laughter is bad. In fact, I think some of us here could probably do a little bit more uh, laughing in our lives as good medicine for our soul. And so then what is what is Jesus saying here? Well, Jesus is pronouncing God's divine favor, his blessing on those who mourn over sin. On those who mourn over sin. And he's giving warning to those who have no problem with it. You know, those who can, can laugh in the face of their own sin and in the sin that's going on in the world around them. You see, Christians are called to recognize sin for what it is. And what sin is, is, is pure evil. It's pure evil. Sin is 
never something to laugh about. Sin destroys families. Sin destroys marriages. Sin destroys culture. Sin is the reason why our culture celebrates sodomy and slaughters the unborn. Sin is the reason that little children are kidnapped and sold into sex slavery slavery to meet the lusts of men around the world. Sin is the reason that governments abuse their citizens. And sin is the reason why millions and millions, maybe billions of people are suffering in hell for all of eternity. To the world's sin, your sin, your children's sin, it's not something to laugh about. It's not a laughing matter. We should weep over our sin. See, when's, when's the last time that you have cried over your own sin? It's a genuine question. I'm sure most of us here have, have probably cried or wept or mourned because of the sin that others have committed against us. But when's the last time you've wept over your own sin? If you're, if you're like me, the answer is probably something like, I can't really remember. I can't really remember. And that's, that's a sad thing. That's something that needs to change. Something that needs to change in my own life. We need to mourn our sin. And I want to give you three ways quickly to help you do that. First, ask God to search your heart and to reveal to you your sin. Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart and see if there be any grievous way in me. I I can almost guarantee you that you are a bigger sinner than you think you are. I can almost guarantee you that you are a worse person than you think you are. But you know who knows who you truly are? God does. And he can reveal that to you. And so I'm I'm challenging you, if you want to be blessed by God as, as one who who mourns and weeps over their sin, pray that difficult prayer. God, God, show me just how sinful I am. God, reveal to me my sin. That's the first way. And the more we understand the holy nature of God, the more that we're going to see our own sin. If you, if you picture your heart like this, this dark and dirty room that's all, all stained and soiled, and then you picture God as, and, and his word as, as a light that enters into that room. The more, the, the more light that gets into the room, the more that you're going to see the stains and the grime. And likewise, the, the more we know about the, the character of God, the more we see how perfect he is, the more we'll see how dirty we actually are and how imperfect we are. And so if you want to be someone who mourns your sin, be someone who has a high view of God by studying his word. Ask him to reveal your sin. Um, Study him. Learn about his holiness. Learn about his perfection. And then thirdly, confess your sin. First and foremost, we need to confess our sin to God. And we need to do so, I think, verbally and audibly. I mean, it's not necessary, but I think confessing our sin to God in our prayers, where we're actually saying these things with our mouths, 
it makes it more real in your mind. You know, to, to, to just pray to God in your, in your mind, um, it doesn't sometimes feel as real. When we actually say, Lord, I am, you know, I am, I'm a prideful person. Lord, I, I, I love money. Lord, I, I am a gossip. Lord, I am angry. When we actually say these things to God and confess them to God, they become more real. And then also, I think it's, it, it's valuable to confess your sins to others. The thing about sin in our lives is, is we want to keep it really private. You know, if, if people don't know about it, it's not as bad. You know, if, 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 if people, people you know, don't, don't know that I'm struggling with this, I can kind of keep it to myself and it's not going to get out. And, and I can get comfortable with it because no one knows about it. But bringing your sin to light through con- confession is going to prevent you from being comfortable in it. It's going to prevent you from trying to justify it in your mind saying, that's eh, not too bad. It's, it's not real. It's, it's a white, it's a white sin. You know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not in the Ten Commandments. You know, but confessing our sin is going to lead you to, to hate your sin more. Because others can keep you accountable and say, no, that is, that is serious. And you need to stop that. And you need to turn from that. And mourning our sin is something that we can all grow in. And, and, and those are some of the ways to start. Now notice the reward that Jesus says belongs to those who do this. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now this is a, is a, is a promise that I think has both immediate and future fulfillment. The time is coming when, when, when Christ is going to come. And he is going to completely destroy the sin that remains in this world. And we will not sin anymore, nor will there be any remnant of it on this earth. Revelation 21 verse 4, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. What a beautiful promise that is. What what a thing to long for. You know, but even before then, when we mourn our sin, we get a taste of this, this laughter and joy in this life. And that's because the the more bitter our sin becomes, the sweeter it is to know the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we recognize more and more our own wickedness, we recognize more and more just how much God actually loves us. Just how much he, he, he spent in sending his son to redeem us. There was a Puritan author who once said it, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till your sin is bitter in your heart and your mind, the sweetness of Christ and all, the, all that he's done, that's not going to bring you the joy and, and gladness and laughter that it's meant to bring you. If Christ isn't, in your life right now, if Christ isn't sweet to you, if Christ isn't anything special to you, maybe it's because your sin isn't bitter enough to you. Or maybe it's even worse. Maybe it's because you still laugh at your sin, which Jesus warns that that path only leads to destruction. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall weep 
and mourn. There's a special special place prepared for those who will not mourn and hate their sin. And it's a sad place to be. It's a place of, of weeping and of gnashing of teeth in the fires of hell. And so heed Christ's warning this morning. Because you either weep now in this life over your sin, or you'll weep for all eternity in your sin. Now moving on to our final beatitude. Blessed are the rejected in this world, and woe to the accepted. Look at verses 22 and 23. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Then verse 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now what Jesus says here is very countercultural. All that he said so far is very countercultural. See, we live in a world where the goal is pretty much to have everyone like you and everyone to speak well of you. you know, and in, in, in churches, this mentality has also crept in as well. We saw it during COVID. Some churches were like, you know, if, we, if we do what the Bible tells us to do, if we keep our church open, the non-Christian community around us is not going to like us. We're, 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 we're going to lose our, our witness to them. We're going to burn some of these bridges because of what they might think of us. But the reality is, if you are a, a Christian, you have to stop having that mindset. If you're a Christian who is living like a Christian and acting like a Christian, and obeying God over man, not everyone is going to like you. In fact, if everyone does like you and approve of you and accept you, you're probably not living like a Christian. Jesus warns against that very thing. If we are out living our Christian faith, pursuing righteousness in our own lives and seeking righteousness in this world, which God calls us to do, lovers of sin, lovers of self, and lovers of evil are not going to like that. They're not going to like that. It's really that simple. You can, you can do everything right. You can extend hospitality, grace, love, generosity, those things you should all be doing. You could be doing the whole nine yards. And guess what? Some people will still never like you because you are a Christian. But then Jesus tells us, don't let that lead you to despair. Instead, Jesus, Jesus says, let it lead you to the opposite. He says, rejoice now. Rejoice in that time. He says, leap for joy. Why? Well, because A, you're going to be rewarded. You will be rewarded for your faithfulness and your steadfastness in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution. And then B, being, being persecuted for the name of Christ, being reviled for the name of Christ, it puts you in pretty darn good company. Everyone loved the false prophets of their days who only prophesied good, who, who tickled their ears, but they rejected the true prophets who spoke the truth, the hard truth. And when we're rejected for preaching the truth, we fall into that same 
category of, of prophets. You know, we're in, we're in good company and we are blessed by God. And now one quick thing to mention, I think perhaps this is a warning, is, is a good clarification for some of us. Jesus says that you're, you're blessed when, peop- when people hate you, revile you, spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And so in other words, if, if, if people hate you simply because you know, you're, a, you're just not a good person, that's not something to rejoice in. Not everyone hates you because you're a Christian. Some people might not like you because you're not a good Christian. If you're being rude, you know, piously obnoxious or insensitive to others, they aren't hating you because you're a Christian. They're hating you because you're a jerk. And you, you, you can't wear that badge of honor of, of, of one of Christ's, you know, honored by Christ for your persecution. You need to make sure that if, if they're going to hate you, just like Jesus, make sure that your record is clean. You make sure that that if they're going to have to make up charge, if, if they're going to have to charge you, they're going to have to make them up, because you are are living for Christ. You're living righteously. Let them hate you because of your allegiance to the Lord Jesus. And so, then all of that to say, don't be discouraged when persecution comes your way. Don't think that somehow you're outside of the will of God because people are turning on you for holding true to the Word of God. And of course, another takeaway is don't fall into the temptation that Jesus warns against. You don't soften the truth of the gospel in order to be well spoken of and not offend others. The message of the gospel is offensive. But the beauty of the gospel is that it needs to offend first and then it provides you with the grace and salvation through Jesus Christ. And so then ultimately, all of us here need to decide, what are we going to live for in this world? Are we going to live for the favor and praises of man? Or are we going to live for the favor and praises of God? Because those two things clash with one another. If you live for the one, you won't receive the favor and praises of God. If you live for the other, you're not going to receive the favor and praises of God. Of man. So which one is more important to you? Favor of man or favor of God? And so those are the four Beatitudes that Jesus gives. And you'll notice that all of them are, they're, they're all really connected. You know, these are all not separate groups, separate things from one another. But there's this same theme that's running through them all. And that theme is essentially this. Those who make themselves comfortable in this world We'll be in for a surprise in the next. We'll be in for a surprise in the next. And so you need to choose which world you're living for. Are you going to live for the God of self and reap all of the pleasures and comforts of this world? Or are you going to live for the true and living God, knowing that the reward is not primarily in this life, but it's in the life to come? That's the choice that's laid out here before all of you today. And it's hard to choose. It's really hard to choose the right path that we're called to walk upon. That's why it's called the narrow path, not the wide path. But I do have some encouragement to leave you with. You're not alone in this. You're not alone in this. God knows what you are going through. God is aware of your suffering and he empathizes with it. 
Remember, Jesus, Jesus lived every single one of these that we talked about today. Jesus was poor. Jesus was hungry. Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was abandoned and reviled by so many people, some of whom he dearly and deeply loved. And yet, what did he do? He considered the kingdoms of this world nothing in comparison to the reward that was waiting for him if he were to remain obedient to God. And he can help us to do the same. That's why you're not alone. You're not alone because Jesus can help you. Hebrews 4, verse 15 to 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Therefore, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of the great throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, chances are you're failing in one or more of these areas in your life. Chances are that after we've read through this, something in your life needs to change. Is it the area of, of riches and generosity? Is it in the area of satisfaction and comfort in this world? Is it, is it in the area of, of a lack of, of weeping over your sin? A lack of understanding the seriousness of violating God's word? Is it a desire for the favor of man to be a people pleaser? To, to be someone who doesn't step on anybody's toes? Whatever it is, don't waste this opportunity to come to the Lord Jesus in repentance. And then to ask him for the grace of Jesus that he offers us at his throne to overcome that sin. If you do that, Jesus says, you will be blessed. You will receive the kingdom of God. You will be satisfied. You shall laugh for all eternity. And you will rejoice among those who counted Jesus worthy to be suffered for. Let's pray.